Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. Uh, If you're a guest joining us today, I want to introduce myself. I'm Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're honored uh, that you are here, whether you came on your own, uh, made your way in uh, with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, maybe a family member, whatever it is, we're really honored that you're here. So much so that we'd love to meet you and tell you that personally, okay? You can hear it from up here, uh, but it means something different when we look you in the eyes and say it. And so we'd love to meet you. If you didn't stop by that blue tent out front on the way in, stop by our Next Steps area on the way out. We'd love to thank you for being here and give you a small gift. Also, we want to point you to an opportunity next weekend uh, if you're newer to Calvary, kind of wanting to learn a little bit more, maybe you've been here a little bit, but just want to take next steps of getting connected, uh, next Sunday morning at 9 a.m., uh, we have once a month what we call Discover Calvary. It's just an opportunity to come, kind of a low-level entry point, just learn a little bit more about who we are as a church, meet some other folks from around the family, and we'd love to get to know you there. I want to invite you to join me there next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. You can just stop by the next steps area, and uh, we'll, we'll take care of uh, feeding you a little bit and making it a great environment, helping answer some questions, and then you can come to worship at 10.30. And so we would love to have you there. Uh, you can learn more. Just stop by Next Steps uh, after the service or just show up next week and we'll, uh, we'll welcome you with open arms. And so we're glad that you're here today. Hope today is a great uh, experience for you. You know, we're continuing today in our series in the book of Mark. We've been working through this over the last couple semesters. In the fall, we talked about Mark and looked a lot at who Jesus is, some of his character and qualities uh, throughout the fall. And then as we started the new year and jumped back into Mark in chapter 10, we've really been looking at what Jesus does. And in particular, we've talked for a couple weeks now about what he teaches. In particular, two weeks now, we spent on what he teaches about marriage. I heard from a couple of parents and a couple of teenagers that live in my house too that that felt really unapplicable to them, but I felt like I needed like 10 more weeks on marriage so that I could try to get up to par uh, with some of you in the church family here. But uh, needless to say, we're going to continue in the book of Mark this morning to the next part of Mark chapter 10 and look at verses 17 through 31. As we've been working through Mark, we're seeing repeatedly that Jesus is challenging both the religious and the irreligious of his day to really see a kingdom that is unlike anything they've ever seen before. In many ways, we've described it as an upside down kingdom. And in the verses that we're looking at today, Mark 10, 17 through 31, if I'm being honest with you, it's really a text that's pretty easy to understand. It's not a text that's that difficult to try to interpret necessarily, but here's what it does, okay? It's Jesus in this text, he presses on some things that are a little sensitive. He presses on some areas of our lives that we might kind of squirm at just a little bit. He presses on some sensitive areas of our lives. It was Mark Twain who wrote this. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. You know, oftentimes it's not where we come to the Bible and find ourselves confused that leaves us perplexed. It's when we come to parts of the Bible that are abundantly clear and those things that it's abundantly clear about comes to a head with what we do with our lives. That's what makes the Bible uncomfortable at times. And today we enter into a text where Jesus does just that. Jesus challenges our allegiance 
to possessions and to money and to relationships. And so as we journey to the heart of this text, which really parallels, if you're following along in the Calvary Bible reading plan, our Wednesday reading of this week from the the, the Gospel of Luke paralleled the same passage about the rich young ruler. And in it, we see that Jesus makes this conversation about far more than the material world. It's not about money and possessions necessarily, but it points to a deep danger that those things may bring into our lives and a great hope that he offers to us. It challenges us to consider our hearts, what we love and how following Jesus ultimately is better than anything else this world can offer. Big idea of what we're gonna talk about today is this, is that if you wanna follow Jesus, if you really want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up everything believing that Jesus is better. If you really want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up everything, truly believing that Jesus is better. So I want to pray for us before we jump in to looking at Mark chapter 10. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for your word. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, it's powerful, it's profitable to teach us and to rebuke us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness or right ways of living so that we are fully put together for the work you've created us for in this life. And this morning, we pray that by your spirit, your word would have that full effect on us. God, would we taste and see today that you are good, that you are our greatest need and that Jesus is better. May we taste that, may we see that, May we believe that today, Father. Would you bless us as we look at your word together? In Christ's name, amen. This morning, what I wanna do from Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31 is consider three primary truths that I believe that God desires of us, of our hearts, of our relationship with the things in this world and ultimately our relationship with him. The first thing I wanna point out is this, is that God is primarily concerned with the allegiance of our hearts. Look with me at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Well, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Again, what we're seeing here come to life is that God is primarily concerned with the allegiance of our heart. You know, it's easy for us, I think, at times to detach from these stories and these characters as we read of them in the Bible, right? Think about it for a second. They didn't have cars, we do. They didn't warm their food up in microwaves like we do. They didn't surf the internet like we do. They didn't have electricity like we do. It's easy for us to see these things and read of these things and hear of these things and quickly detach because it feels like it's so far gone from where I'm at. But I think the reality is, as we dig into this text, we actually discover that we are not far off from this young ruler. 
When we think about it, it describes him here in the context of the passage and other parallel passages in the New Testament that he was wealthy, that he was young, and that he was powerful. I'm not going to ask by a show of hands who considers them wealthy, young, themselves wealthy, young, and powerful, okay? I'm definitely not getting into the young debate, all right? I think that's a moving target if you ask me. But the point is this. It's not those things that make him like us necessarily. It's the reality that he was overly confident in his own goodness. He was overly confident in his own goodness, not much different than we often are about ourselves. Typically, people think pretty highly of themselves. We don't have to train children to be selfish. We think very highly of ourselves, but he's also like us in this is that he's also wondering what else he needs so that he can have safety and security for eternity. He's wondering about life after death. And he wants security and comfort when he thinks about it. It's the most deep and and loud question that rings in the hearts of every human being. Whether they articulate it that way or not, every person is wondering, how can I have security for what life is like after death? And in certain seasons, we might ask that more frequently than others. Later seasons of life might ask that more frequently. If you've been near death more recently, you might ask that question more frequently. But ultimately, this man is like us in many ways. We often overestimate our own goodness and underestimate how deeply we need God. This man's story is not far off from us. Yes, he has monetary and social prominence at a young age, May or may not be true of some of the folks in the room. But we see him, he comes running up to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he asks this question that clearly is burning deep inside of his soul. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now he assumes, you can tell by the way he asks the question that he knows the answer to it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But he quickly finds out he's wrong. See, he's come to the right person in Jesus. His question isn't a bad one. It's just a bit misguided. And honestly, he takes a a right physical posture. It says that he knelt down before him. But he is deeply misguided because he's convinced that the answer to the question is something that he can add to his life, something that he can do that will help him to inherit eternal life. But what Jesus doesn't do is throw that back in his face. Instead, Jesus takes a little bit different angle with this rich young ruler, and he responds by challenging his idea of what is good. You know, what Jesus is doing here, he's giving the man, I think, an opportunity to respond by acknowledging that Jesus ultimately is God. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a rabbi, but that he is actually God and therefore is truly good. He's also giving the man an opportunity to realize that he himself, this young ruler, is not good. So he's giving the man an opportunity to acknowledge these things. But ultimately, he doesn't. Because he, like us, often are a bit deceived, confused when we think about what the word good means, aren't we? Think about how we use the term, right? Maybe just in the last week of your life. You went to a sporting event or played and participated in one and you said, man, that was a good game. That was a good shot. That was a good play. 
You ate sometime this week, whether it was McDonald's or Ryan's, and you used the same word to describe it. It was good. Here's one I really don't understand. How, when your dog uses the bathroom in your front yard instead of your kitchen, you say, oh, you're a good dog. Circumstances determine what that word means. But for Jesus, that's not what he's doing. It's not relative to other people and experiences and circumstances that he uses the word good. No, he's referring to the perfect moral character of God when he uses the word good. And therefore, what he is ultimately saying is that with that standard, no one is good except for God alone. And watch how the man replies. He starts trying to defend his good. You see, ultimately what's happening here is this man's physical posture has probably changed, right? He started kneeling. Most likely at this point in the conversation, he's standing, looking face to face with Jesus. His physical posture has changed, but what's happening is the posture of his heart is actually finally being revealed to the people around him. Jesus knew the posture of his heart, but now it's being revealed to everyone else as he combats Jesus around what is good and ultimately what he believes about himself. He defends himself, revealing that he believes that he is good enough to please God. He just wanted to make sure that he added the other right things so that he could truly inherit eternal life. He thought he could simply add one more thing and Jesus confronts him and says, no, it's not about addition here. In fact, what I need you to do is do some subtraction. I need you to detach your heart from the things of this world. Jesus says, I am asking you a question that ultimately boils down to the allegiance of your heart. And what your answer is revealing is this. It's revealing your self-rule, your self-righteousness, and your self-allegiance. You know, there is a probing question that has been asked thousands and thousands and thousands of times, at least over the last decades, several decades. Many of you in this room probably have heard this question before. Some of you, maybe not. Some of you in this room have heard this question before and it has haunted you. Some of you have heard this question before and it was a part of God using the spirit to draw you toward him. And it's this, if you were to die tonight, And you stood before almighty God. And he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? One pastor said it this way. If your answer is in the first person, you're terribly wrong. the only correct answers in the third person. And what that means for you more basic people like myself who went to NC State, if your answer starts with because I, because I, because I, because I, because I, because I went to church, because I got baptized, because I went to Sunday school, because I did these things, because I said these things, because I know these things, because I've accomplished these things, because I haven't done these things. If your answer starts there, you're terribly mistaken. The only right way to respond to the question is because he, because Jesus, 
There is nothing we could or should do in and of ourselves that can make us stand before God with confidence. It is only because of Jesus. The blood applied that we just sang of, that is the only hope in life and death for every single person. And questions like this have a tendency to reveal ultimately what we are putting our hope in, what our heart's ultimate allegiance is to. And I believe that this is one of the greatest hangups of Christianity in the Western world because we are so convinced that we can do enough to achieve it for ourselves. And the culture tells us that that is the mantra of how to live life. Because I, because I, because I. And so you have people that are looking at Christianity from a distance and perplexed by the reality that I can't do enough to fix my problems with God. My hope actually relies on the work of another. You have people that have been hurt by Christians emotionally and physically that have walked through great trauma and they look at Christians and think, how could they have hope? I mean, if, if what they say sometimes is true, which it isn't, that God helps those who help themselves, I don't want any of that. You've got even well-meaning people that had truly put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, Christians, that buy into the lie day in and day out that they have to continue to perform to sustain God's love toward them. All of this is wrapped up in the same thing. Because I, because I, because I. You know, ultimately what's happening here is Jesus is causing them to really think deeply about what it means to follow him. And this is what he's saying in part, that what it means to follow him or discipleship, it demands allegiance to Christ and Christ alone that it demands allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. You know, the reality is, if you understand the word allegiance, which is one we may use at different times and in different ways, there is actually, it's a logical impossibility to pledge your allegiance to more than one thing. And so what Jesus is saying here is that I want your heart, period. I don't want part of it. I want your heart. And so he's asking for the allegiance of our hearts because God is primarily concerned with that because we're not good enough by his standard. We can't do enough by his standard. We can't achieve enough ourselves. We must rely on him for that. But there's good news as the Bible often does for us here. Look at verse 21. It says, Jesus looking at him, Jesus loved him. Whether you're a Christian that's struggling with this ongoing performance mindset, or you're one like this young ruler who's far off looking at a distance, a little perplexed by the reality that you can't get to him yourself, there's good news for you. It's that regardless of your posture toward him, Jesus looks on you with love. If you're trying on your own, Jesus looks on you with love. If you're working in vain to create a, a perception of perfection around your life, Jesus looks on you with love. If you're frustrated with the reality that you can't earn your way to him, Jesus looks on you with love. If you are rebelling 
living a life mired by sin. Jesus looks on you with love. He doesn't look on you with shame. He's not looking on you with guilt. He's not looking at you trying to manipulate. He's not looking at you thinking, too far gone. He looks on you with love. Because he knows that your failure is primarily not horizontal, that ultimately it is vertical. It's an internal problem. It's an issue of the allegiance of your heart. And he's begging the question of us. Are you pledging your primary allegiance, the primary place of your life, the priority of your life to Jesus or something else? You see, this man's issue is not that he won't sell his stuff. This is not a text about selling all you have. The issue isn't that the man wouldn't sell all of his stuff. The issue is that the man's heart is so attached to all of his stuff that he will not follow Jesus. It's a matter of the allegiance of the heart. That's why Kent Hughes wrote this about it. The man who only, this man who only moments ago knelt before Jesus, enthusiastic and expectant, he now stood up, turned his back on our Lord and went away sorrowful. Why? There's only one reason given. For he had great possessions, or we might rightly say, because great possessions had him. What has a hold of your heart? What has the primary allegiance of your heart? The context tells us that this young man, he was young, he was wealthy, he was powerful. Jesus describes a situation to us that shows that ultimately he is bankrupt that he has nothing. Though it looks like he has everything, ultimately he has nothing because God is primarily concerned with the allegiance of our heart. And this man's allegiance is ultimately to himself, to his stuff, to his wealth, to his relationships, to his own doing, to his own comfort. And Jesus looks on him with love as he walks away. And I want, to understand, I want you to understand something. This is not what that means. That doesn't mean that all roads lead to heaven. And so Jesus just keeps looking on you with love, even in your rebellion. He does look on you with love in your rebellion, but not such that you just go to heaven automatically, right? There's no such thing as no cost Christianity. There is no such thing as it. What he is doing here, though, is demonstrating that in the midst of our rebellion, as Matt reminded us of from Romans 5 just a moment ago, he demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. He didn't die and then move on. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. God is primarily concerned with the allegiance of the heart, but secondly, our love of the things of this world make it really hard to follow Jesus. Pick up with me in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. It says this, Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. And again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to one another, well, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Our love of the things of the world make it incredibly 
difficult to follow Jesus. Jesus here turns to his friends, his disciples, and he's trying to give some commentary on what's just unfolded in this, this conversation with the rich young ruler. And he says, listen, guys, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they're shocked by this statement. They're shocked primarily because it was a cultural norm among them. It was customary to believe that if you had wealth, then you were experiencing the blessings of God. Sounds like a familiar tune in our culture as well. Many would say, oh, I'm blessed. Why? Because I have stuff. This was a common stream of thinking among this day as well. And so Jesus, he repeats himself, but with slightly different terms. Did you catch it? The second time he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He changes two things. He uses the word children as if to say, hey, don't forget in this conversation that you need to rely on me. And then he completely removes the word wealth from the statement. He's he's saying, (laughs) it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. But then he doesn't stop there. He uses this illustration, right? And he says, it's like a camel, a large animal, trying to fit through the eye of a needle, a tiny, tiny, tiny opening. Well, what's his point here? Well, it's this, is that it is utterly impossible for a person to enter the kingdom of God. You imagine now maybe why they were so astonished. He just said it is utterly impossible for a person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, though he seems to be addressing wealth here, his omission of riches in the second statement, it points to this broader idea that isn't just about money. The young man, yes, he had been rich. And though he mentions wealth as a descriptor of those who have difficulty into the kingdom of God, he's pointing to something larger. He's pointing to the fact that our inclination to fall madly in love with the things of this world make it impossible for us in and of our own capabilities to follow Jesus. Our inclination to fall madly in love with the things of this world make it impossible for us in and of our own capabilities to follow Jesus. He's confronting this reality. He uses money to emphasize it because of the context of the previous conversation and this reality that wealth has a power like nothing else in our world to hijack our souls. I wonder if you felt that in your life at some point. Maybe it was a moment of great wealth Maybe it was a moment of great poverty. Money has the power to hijack our souls. Why? Because it has the power to detach us from our dependence on God. It has the power to distract our gaze from Jesus. It has the power to deepen our dependence on ourselves. And so Jesus here is using hyperbole, exaggerated statement to emphasize that being ruled by anything else prevents us from being able to be ruled by God. He's doubling down on what we see in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount. When when he says this, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money, we find in Matthew six. And it's not because money is evil. We see Paul clarify that in 1 Timothy chapter six. 
When he would say this, he says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not evil itself, but it sits underneath much of the evil that takes place in our lives. It's as if he's saying this. He's saying, don't call evil that which God has given to you as good. But also don't call savior that which can't save. Did you catch that? Don't call evil that which God has given to you as good. But don't call Savior that which cannot save. And I think it begs the question of us. What is it that has a tendency to take control of your heart and make it hard to follow Jesus? You know, in this particular passage, we see that self-righteousness can do that. Money can do that. Possessions can do that. Relationships can do that. Authority can do that. We see that this idea of no-cost Christianity can hijack our souls. And I've shared this with some of you before, but I think there's really five primary categories that you can give to those things that have a tendency to hijack our souls. Those things you might refer to in Bible terms as idols. Those things that that our hearts gravitate toward instead of Jesus. And the first category is this, it's possessions. We see it here in this passage. Those things that we wanna gather, we wanna get more stuff, more stuff, more houses, bigger houses, bigger cars, more cars, right? We wanna have more stuff. And that looks different at different stages of life. We also wanna gain more profits, more money, right? We want one more zero in the bank account, one more zero in the retirement account. We want the decimal to move to the right one more time, right? So we can have a little bit more comfort and security. We also look for that in power. If I can have some position, some authority, some influence, right? But then, then I'll be satisfied. We look for security and power and position. We also look for it in people. If I can have the right relationship with the right person, then everything will be okay. If I can just get that relationship, maybe it's an avenue to success in business. Maybe it's an avenue to marriage. And maybe it's just an avenue to comfort. It may be any number of things, but we look to relationships and people to bring us security and comfort and peace. For some and many, it's just pleasure. If I can just feel that one way again, emotionally or physically, then I'll be satisfied one more time, just one more time. But ultimately what we see in scripture is that there's a purpose that God has created us for and it's that purpose only that will satisfy us, which is to be in relationship with the creator of the universe who made you and loves you. That is the purpose which God made you for and it is the only thing that will satisfy you. And here we see Jesus bringing to light this reality, causing us to stop and ask some questions that are really important of us. Why? Because following Jesus, discipleship demands evaluation. It demands evaluation that we honestly and consistently ask questions of our own hearts, of our allegiance, of our pursuits, and of our hopes. What is it that has greater value in our lives than Jesus? But as we continue on in the text, we see The disciples asked this question, and it sounds oddly familiar to the one that the young ruler had just asked. A little different, but the same kind of underlying idea. Well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And listen to how Jesus responds. Maybe familiar words for some. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Press pause for just a second. How many times have we used or heard that verse to say, well, man, I know it's a hard situation, but everything's possible with God. If he's on your side, you're good. That's not what the verse says. 
This is why it's important to understand what the Bible says in context. In no way is this saying, hey, if God's on your side, you're good. Hey, if you try anything and you're a Christian, you'll succeed. That's a gross misrepresentation of the text. So what then does it say? (laughs) It's Jesus looking at his friends and saying, hey guys, it's utterly impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God, but with God, it's possible. He's saying this, he's saying, though it's utterly impossible for people to enter the kingdom of God on their own due to their tendency to give themselves to lesser things, to to seek satisfaction and peace and hope in their own doing, he's saying with God, this is possible. It's impossible for man to save himself, but with God, salvation is possible. That's the only thing this verse means. That you cannot save yourself, but God can save you. It's impossible for you to do. It's impossible for me to do, but God can do it. That he can save you. He can buy you out of darkness into glorious light that we just sung of. He can take you from death to life. He can make the blind person see spiritually. He can save. We cannot Ultimately, that's what Jesus is pointing to here. Nothing that you do, you have, you associate with can get you into the kingdom of God. Only God can do that. And it's not that what he gives us is bad. It's not that those things that we experience from him, money, jobs, even suffering, those things aren't bad. They're not necessarily bad for us. In many ways, they're good for us. But his point here is that those things are not sufficient to save us and we are not sufficient to save ourselves. He's saying, my my arm, God's arm is not too short to save you, but yours is. God alone can save. You are not too far gone. And though our love of the things of this world makes it hard to follow Jesus, God makes it possible. Finally, we see this, that ultimately Jesus is better than anything this world can offer. Listen to what he says or what happens unfolds in in verse 28. Peter began to tell him, right? Classic Peter, first one to speak up, puts his foot in his mouth. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time of houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions, right? Suffering is a part of this and eternal life in the age to come. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Peter says, hey, we've left everything, Jesus. And if I'm being honest, I don't know what his motivation is in saying it, all right? I have no idea exactly what it is. It may be that he was pleading his case. It may be that he's just making a statement of agreement with Jesus. It could be that he's just not certain if he's done enough. I I don't know. But the point here is what Jesus says in response. He reminds them that following him is better than what it may cost them. Following him is better than whatever it may cost them, both now and for eternity. You know, like many things in the kingdom of God, and we've been pointing to this reality throughout this series, that it seems upside down to the logic of this world, that as you detach from the things of this world, that you actually gain more than you could ever attain on your own. 
As you detach from the things of this world, you gain more than you could ever attain on your own. Following Jesus comes at great cost, but ultimately the net is no loss. It comes at great cost, but ultimately there is no loss. And all he says here is that it requires faith. Faith. Jesus is reminding us here that ultimately discipleship or following him demands faith. And specifically, childlike faith. If you look at the text that leads up to verse 17, Jesus is actually confronting his disciples because they've been sending people away who are bringing children to Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 15 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus responding to his his friends, the disciples. He says, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He doesn't say, if you don't accept Jesus as a kid, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. He says, if you don't receive the kingdom like a child, you will never enter it. He doesn't say you might not. He doesn't say it's 50-50. He says, if you don't receive this good news like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Ultimately, what he's saying is that childlike faith, it looks something like this, like a helpless but hopeful confidence that Jesus, only Jesus can meet my greatest need. It's a helpless but hopeful confidence that Jesus, only Jesus can meet my greatest need. I was talking with a gentleman after the first service and he came up to me and he said, you know what I think childlike faith is, Stephen? I said, what? Believing God can put that camel through the eye of the needle. I said, that'll preach, bro. Only God can put the camel through the eye of the needle. Childlike faith is believing that he can. It's believing that he can. It's believing that only he can do it and placing our dependence fully upon him. And so I'd ask you this morning, what's keeping you from following Jesus like that? What's keeping you from following Jesus like that? Not checking all the boxes, but following Jesus like that with full and complete dependence, helpless, knowing that I can't do it on my own, but hopeful, confidence that Jesus alone can meet my greatest need. You know, ultimately, if you've not heard this before, I think it's important for you to hear today that you were made by God. And you were made for God. And he loves you. But there's a reality about every human being that the Bible affirms and that our experience affirms as well, which is there's this little thing inside of us called sin. It's our rebellion against God and we can't make it go away. We can try to fight it, but we can't make it go away. But because it's true, it separates us from God who made us and loves us and wants us to live for him. And the good news of the gospel is, is that God didn't leave us alone, empty, wondering what to do. It says in the Bible that God being rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love at just the right time, he sent his forth, sent his son. Jesus, who would live a life that we can't live, that would die a death that we deserve in our place 
so that by trusting in him, putting our full allegiance upon him and him alone for the forgiveness of sins, to make us right before God, to promise us of eternal security with him through the blood of Jesus, That we, yes, may experience a cost to following him, but we will also experience a life of great gain, both now and in eternity. There is only one hope in life and death, and it is Jesus. We will not attain it by adding to our lives or by doing enough good or having enough stuff or even by giving everything up and not doing the wrong things. It's only by detaching our hearts from the things of this world and giving our full and complete allegiance to Jesus. It's childlike faith. It's believing that God alone can fit the camel through the eye of the needle. And so as we close this morning, I wanna ask you a few questions just to consider. I'd encourage you to write these down. The first is this, what are you seeking from the things of this world that only Jesus can provide? What are you seeking from the things of this world that only Jesus can provide? I asked several folks these questions this week, this question in particular, men and women, and tried to get some different understandings of what people think. And it really boiled down to about five or six things. Security, comfort, control, identity, value, status, peace, What are you looking for in the things of this world that only Jesus can provide? The second question is this, is self-righteousness and no-cost Christianity keeping you from giving your heart fully to Jesus? Is your confidence in yourself keeping you from giving your heart fully to Jesus? Is your view of yourself keeping you from that? Is it your desire or understanding that Christianity should be easy and cost me nothing, only gain me things? What is it maybe? Are these things keeping you from giving your heart fully to Jesus? And last and most simply is, do you really believe that Jesus is better? Do you really believe that Jesus is better? You know, Paul talks of this in Philippians chapter three when he says, I consider it all loss. It's garbage, it's trash compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus. Is that your posture toward him? Do you really believe that Jesus is better? If you want to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to give up everything. He may not ask for it all, but he will certainly ask for all of your heart. Do you truly believe that he is better? Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.